What's up, everyone? Welcome to Sitting with Sean, episode number eight. Man, it's crazy. I have eight episodes of this out already. It's wild, man. Uh, but uh, today, today I got a really, really special guest. His name is Joe Stan. What's up, Joe? How you doing, bud? What's up, people? How y'all doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm blessed. Yeah, yeah. We all are, man. We all are. So, uh, uh, Joe, would you like to give a formal introduction of yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Joe. Uh, originally from North Carolina. I'm uh, working in the oil fields in North Dakota right now. I uh, plan on going back home for too long, so that's about it. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. And uh, and good old North Carolina boy. There's nobody like you guys. <laughs> right. Ain't nobody I like good guys. Bad thing, but... <laughs> hey, that's a good thing. That's a good thing, man. Yeah. Uh, so real quick, real quick, I uh I met Joe on on TikTok, man. He he uh I, I seen one of his videos come along and it, it talked recovery, and I was like, oh, here we go. Another person in the recovery community. I'm down for it. I, I'm for it. I love I love talking recovery. I like hearing people's stories. And uh so so Joe, what what made you come to TikTok? Well, uh the town I live in, you know, there's one I do a 12 step program. There's uh one meeting up here. I kind of see the same people hear the same stuff. And, uh, you know, I don't really know a whole lot of people up here. So I just got on TikTok to kind of connect with people. I was going to, you know, reach out to the recovery community and, uh, you know, I met some really good people on there. So kind of let me stuck around, made me stick around, but I've been on there for about two or three months now. And, I'll probably get on there a little too much, but you know, I have a good time with it. Hey, you know, it, it, it keeps you sober sometimes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just that connection with human beings, man. Yep. That's what it's all about. Staying connected, man. And, uh, yeah, I know, I know my experience, man. Like I, I, I shared this with you, but I hated TikTok, man. Cause my kids were on, I was seeing all these shitty trends <laughs> people doing. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I want no part of that. And, uh, you know, I share this with almost everybody that jumps on here. I, I, I heard about a woman who lost her husband to, re to, uh, to addiction and, uh, she read a note and I was just, I was floored. And I was like, if there's this much pain on, on TikTok, then I think I can do some good. Yeah. That's, uh, that's kind of what I do up there, man. Uh, a lot of people, I think, get up there and put this fake image up that life is all great. No sunshine and roses sometimes, but. You know, I try to be as real and as authentic as possible. You know, I, I, I got an idea about, you know, people that kind of hold their pain in. You know, if, you, if you're familiar with what uh, Stockholm Syndrome is, like, you know, it's when uh, so you get kidnapped or something and get abused and you end up developing a bond with your abuser and protect them. And I feel like human beings do a lot of that with their pain sometimes and refuse to bring it to, to justice and expose it. So I think the more authentic we can get, the more we can talk about what, what's hurting us from the inside out is is a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. Being being authentic, being your original self—that's that's what it's all about, um, and that's what makes this life of recovery so awesome. Yes, and uh, because because you're able to strip away all the shit that you've that that you put on yourself and that you've disproven your whole life, and just be able to be like, okay, yeah, this is what's wrong with me, and and it's okay that it, that there's something wrong, but. But you know now, now it's uh it's time to to heal and get better, right? Yeah, yep, yep. yeah, man. And and the influence you have, dude. I I want to say right off the bat, I am super proud of you. Just coming on and exposing yourself and, and and talking about 
you know, the things that, that really bother you. Not too many people do that. Uh, I'm one of those people that do do it, but it's very rare to see people do that, man. So I want to take a moment and say thank you for, for stepping out in the deep end and being in, and hanging out with me in the deep end, man. Cause yeah. it gets fucking lonely out here sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you for it too, man. It's, uh, it's always good, man, to see somebody that, that is, uh, you know, really experiencing life as a human being and able to put that out there without fear. You know, that that's the whole thing is, is the most courageous thing you can do is be vulnerable sometimes and, you know, chink away at that armor and uh, really get out there and expose yourself. So, you know, it's about removing that last fig leaf, man, just letting yourself heal, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. Going in it completely exposed. That's what it's all about. All right, man. So let's get into it, brother, man. Uh, what was it like in, in your active addiction? Well, I got a relatively late start as far as uh, drinking and drug abuse. Uh, I grew up on a farm. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say anything too, too negative about my, you know, because I, I do love my family. Uh, you know, we're working on healing some things, but, you know, childhood, and, you know, did a lot of farm work, uh, played sports as a, as a child, you know, my first suicide attempt was at six years old. So like there was already something I knew that was off about me. And, uh, you know, I never really felt like I, I belonged or fit in anywhere, you know, ran away from home a bunch of times, uh, going into high school, uh, you know, got into sports and that helped me to be part of something. So, you know, that, that did a lot of good for me. Got into college on an athletic scholarship. Uh, after my first year in college, I was kind of, you know, sports became a job. It wasn't fun anymore. So that's when I started going into the, the darker things. Uh, you know, I started smoking weed a little bit. And once I got out of college, uh, I started, you know, I started doing wrestling, powerlifting, mixed martial arts, and uh, I was always in pain all the time. I got a good job out of college, so I was working 45, 50 hours a week and then spending about 30 hours a week at the gym. And uh, I think I was about 24, just in pain, just sore all the time, and a buddy of mine came to me. Had This is when uh you know, you can still crush up Oxycontin and, and snort it. So he came up with a 80 milligram Oxycontin. He's like, here, try this. So <laughs> he broke it up, cut it in the lines. And uh, I snorted about 60 milligrams of it. And, man, I was in love, dude. Like, I, that, that, was, that was the first time I felt like I wanted to feel. You know, I was normal. Uh, you know, I didn't have all the anxiety, all the, all the uncomfort of being in my own skin. And, uh, you know, I, I can't say it was a gradual build, man. That first, first time I did Oxycontin, man, I was doing it every day. I was spending all my money on it. Didn't really realize I had a problem with it. Uh, I remember one day I was heading to work. I felt sick, man. Like, you know, nose was running, just had chills, eyes watering. I caught, I thought I had the flu. I caught in, Turned around and went home, and uh, I had a pill in my pocket, and you know, I rolled it up in a dollar, crushed it up, blew it up my nose, and immediately, all of it went away. And I was like, "Man, I'm fucked." So <laughs> uh, that went on for a while. Uh, yeah, I did. You know, I was pretty much a straight pill snorter for 
probably the first 10 years of addiction. So, well, I'd say first, first eight years of, of addiction. And, uh, you know, I, I never stopped. It was an everyday thing. <laughs> I lost my job because of the dope sickness and, you know, not being able to come to work. And, uh, that point in time I had, you know, vehicles repossessed, uh, you know, they were uh, foreclosing on my home. And a buddy of mine came up. He's like, you know, I know a way you can make some money. Had the mixed martial arts background. So I'm, I think I was like 27, 28 at this time, maybe 29. <laughs> and um, she took me to this warehouse. In this warehouse, there was a bunch of people that were high. I'm not going to mention any any organizations' names in this, uh, but there was some people that were kind of, high up in certain organizations, drug dealers. And what they would do is bet on people. You know, we'd fight, we'd get money. And yeah, I made a decent amount doing that. And while I was doing that, I got noticed by one of these organizations and uh, it's never affiliated, but they brought me in to do some contract stuff, you know, enforcement, security, you know, a lot of the, the gory shit that goes along with that lifestyle. But, uh, you know, I was doing this. I had a lot of money passed through my hands. I did a lot of things that, that ended up on my fourth and fifth step. And when I got sober, and started working a program. And uh, by the time when I was 30, I found out that my son was coming. And, uh, you know, I went, you know, it was a, it's kind of a scary moment. But I went to these guys and I was like, I'm out. You know, I didn't have nothing to lose. Now I do. And uh, thankfully, they let me walk. I uh, didn't have any repercussions for that. But uh, you know, prior to that, there, there's a story I do want to touch on. Uh, I was in this trap house one night when my son's mother was pregnant. And, uh, you know, I was watching these little kids play with these toy guns, and, you know, the little orange caps on them, whatever. And I remember I was getting pissed off because they won't ha- they won't handle the guns right. And, uh, Anyway, I end up passing out on this pile of dirty laundry. And this kid wakes me up, kicking me. I was probably eight years old. He's kicking me in the foot, got the gun pointed at me. I wake up, sucker. (laughs) (laughs) So I look past the gun into his eyes, and, you know, they were just jet black, man. Like, all the innocence was gone out of his eyes. And I'll come back to this later on when I'm I'm talking about this. But uh, So that happens. My son's born. And I wish I could tell you, you know, this is one of the things that came up on my my inventory list, too. I wish I could tell you that my son was enough to make me get sober. But in all honesty, I had a resentment towards him because I couldn't be the piece of shit that I wanted to be because I had a son. You know, like I wanted to spend all my time getting fucked up. And, you know, there were there was a lot of times I had to at least try my best to watch him and uh you know, that, that ain't saying, like, you know, I'll be as real as it gets, and I'm sure it might get some hate in the comment section, but, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have stuff out on the table, and he'd be crawling around on the floor. I'd nod off, you know, it was all that stuff that I regret and wish I, I could do over again sober, but, I mean, that's, that's the real story of it. That's what happened. You know, if love could fix this thing, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be an addict. Like, my mama tried to love me to death, but in, in all honesty, she was loving me to death, you know, with the enablement. And, uh, yeah. So we moved past that. 
uh, this went on. Uh, I was living in this other house. I had rented a house from my aunt for a while. She kicked me out when she found out what I was doing. It was the first time I really said, yo, I got a problem. I need some help. My brother kind of mentioned something to her. And she didn't like the idea of me doing drugs in the house I was renting from her. So she she told me to leave. I got this other house, got a job. My buddy of mine hit me up with a job. Uh, So I'm living there just trying to wing it. And uh, so... And then my son's about four at this time, and he's playing flag football. I just got one of the moments, man. I couldn't quit. I didn't know what to do. Felt like the biggest piece of shit, the worst father ever. And uh, I tried to kill myself, and I was supposed to coach his game the next day. So I'm laying there in the bed, and I just shot up like a huge amount of heroin. I'm laying there in the bed, and my dog licks me in the face enough for me to open my eyes. And when I open my eyes on my nightstand, there's a picture of my son that is always hanging on the wall. Like somehow it made it to the nightstand. I don't remember doing it. And when my eyes opened, they locked on his eyes. And I, I thought back to that little boy in that trap house. And, uh, you know, my son's eyes still had life in them. They were still innocent. So I dialed 911. I couldn't say nothing. Like, you know, I was, I, I'm, I'm not even sure how I got the phone call. Cops show up at the house. One of the cops that showed up was like the only cop on the Clayton Police Department that I had a good relationship with. And uh, so he comes in, he takes me to the hospital, Narcan, the whole nine. They let me out five hours later. So I get out and like, I don't know if you know if you've ever been narcaned after being fucked up, but like you go straight into withdrawal. So I'm feeling like shit. I can't make it to my son's football game. So again, the head starts working, and I'm the biggest piece of shit in the world. And uh, the day after that, I take all of that dope that I had left, load it up in one needle, and shoot it. And I lock myself in the bathroom so my dog can't wake me up this time. This is where God comes in. So I'm in the bathroom dead. And this cop that knows me was just so on his day off at the right exact moment. He pulls up in my yard and says, I'm going to check on Joe see how he's doing. So my front door is open. He lets himself in because my truck's in the yard. Calls my name. No response. He goes, sees the bathroom door shut and locked kicks the door open, finds me dead, cold and blue on, on the toilet, and saves my life. And uh, yeah, I remember going to that, that hospital. I was just so fucking angry. Like, I, I did not. I, was, I probably owed him nurses and amends. <laughs> I was a fucking asshole. I'm but, sorry, real quick. I, uh, I'm tearing up. I'm just I'm just letting you know I'm tearing up, man. Do your thing. You, you got me. <laughs> this is the first time I've teared up at somebody's story. You're good. Go ahead. <laughs> So, uh, laying in the hospital bed, uh, there's this place. Oh, this is actually funny right here. While I'm in the hospital, my neighbor calls. So, my son's mom has let herself in my house and has taken photographs of all the paraphernalia, all the shit I have in the house. She goes to the police department and 
displays the evidence. My neighbor calls me and says, hey, man, the cops are suiting up right now outside of your house. They got AK-47s and drug dogs, and they're about to raid. So I'm like, fuck. So, of course, my landlord didn't didn't want to let me stay there anymore. I didn't know this at the time, but my mom had been going to a support group, and they were telling her to stop enabling me. Like, you know, at that point, I hadn't heard from her in maybe a year and a half. So I leave there. I go home. I'm asking for a place to stay. She's like, well, I got to talk to your dad. You know, me and my dad's relationship's been strained for a while. So I'm like, that's not going to go good. She's like, will you ride with me to the store? Get in the car. We go to the what I think is the store. She pulls up at the homeless shelter and says, get out of my car. I'm calling the cops. So I got the shirt on my back, what I got on. And it just so happens this homeless shelter has a recovery uh, program built into it. So I go in there. I'm there for six weeks. Get introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, the 12 Steps. And I find a sponsor. I'm still friends with this guy and start working the steps. Uh, so at that point, you know, I got clean. My job allowed me to keep it. Uh, another friend of mine said I could rent their house. So at 12 weeks, I left that place. I went to the new the new area. I was living there for a while. Started working. Had some success, man. Like I worked the steps. Uh, you know, I was, I was doing well. Then COVID hits uh, January 2020, and all the meetings shut down, and I didn't I didn't know anything about Zoom. Uh, at the same time, you know, I had a friend of mine that was in stage four liver failure, and she had been drinking again, couldn't stop. Like she had got almost two years and went back out and couldn't stop. So I was like, put my focus on trying to help her. <clears throat> a couple friends of mine overdosed, and I got in this moment. January 4th of 2020 that I just didn't want to feel it no more. And I just wanted to get out of it one time. And I called, it was five in the morning. I called a guy in AA. He didn't answer the phone. Of course, the dope man's open 24-7. I called him. He did answer the phone. I went and uh, got a bag of heroin. <clears throat> I shot it up. Just one time. It lasted 10 months. Uh, on that on that cycle, I started using methamphetamine as well. Started getting fentanyl. Started dealing. I lost that job. They they popped a random drug test on me. I told them I couldn't pass it. So I went. I was doing odd jobs. I was I was dealing at night, working at the day during the daytime. Uh, I met a guy. I tried to go to detox for a bit. Met a girl there that introduced me with another plug. Me and him hit it off and started dealing pretty heavy. There's a whole story about the U.S. Marshals in there, but I'm going to skip it. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so we went to get some methamphetamine one night. This is June 12th, 2020. So we go up there. We get, the, we get the pickup. I get back to his house. I got about a 45-minute drive to my house. I'm like, I've been up for a week straight. And uh, I take some of that meth and saying, okay, this will at least get me home. And probably then so didn't know it was uh, cut with fentanyl. Uh, took a shot of it, had about a 20-minute burst of energy. Started getting tired behind the wheel, and I was like, man, I can make it, I can make it, I can make it. 
I was four minutes away from my house, and uh, what I remember about this this event, I remember being in the ditch sideways, going at 60 miles an hour. I looked at the speed limit or speedometer. I looked up and saw the RPC pipe under the driveway in front of me, and after that, I don't remember nothing. I remember some radio noises, some flashing red lights. I flipped the truck three, four, five times. I'm not real sure. I got a picture of it on on one of my TikTok posts and on you know Facebook the whole nine. But uh, truck was destroyed. It was upside down. One of the wheels missing. Like a tree was growing out of it. I broke my neck. I fractured my spine and pretty much uh, ear to ear on the back of my skull was fractured. That's why this half of my face doesn't work real well. Uh, it's, it's still 80, 90 percent uh, or about 10, 20 percent paralyzed. I've got a lot of movement back in it, but it's not all the way. So I had a uh, piece of my skull compressed on my cranial nerve. They took that out. And uh, I, I woke up in the hospital after three days on a ventilator. So I remember feeling protected that night you know i i don't remember a lot about it but the red like i know some of that was the fire engines but there was like this red this red presence that was around me that night prior to all this and so when i woke up in the hospital you know i felt like fucking wolverine in the weapons x program like i'm like because <laughs> in my head i made it home i was gonna wake up with my dogs so i wake up there and uh Nurse comes in. She says, Mr. Stanley, you should be in a cemetery right now. She said, uh, 95% of the people that come in with your injuries die. She said, the rest are quadriplegic. And she goes, the fact that you're alive and can move your arms and legs right now has restored my faith. She goes, you got a purpose, and you better figure out what it is and grab a hold of it. Now, I don't remember a lot about this, but I'll never forget it. what the nurse said. And uh, when she walks out, they tell me I'm going to have to learn how to walk again. So when they tell me this, I'm like, yeah, fuck this, man. Like, willpower ain't never been an issue for me in anything except quitting. So I'm getting out of my bed when they're not in the room and trying to do squats. You know, I can't I can't barely, like, bend my knees, but, you know, I'm trying to do what I can, walk around a little bit without falling. Doctor comes in on day five after I woke up and says, I have never had a patient on as much pain medication as you and you keep asking for more. So I was like, you don't understand. Like, I have a high tolerance. <laughs> She's like, we're going to have to start cutting you off. So immediately, I start going into withdrawal. And uh, on the sixth day, I AMA'd out of the hospital. I figured out how to walk again. Got my, got my little walker and got out of there. Buddy of mine picked me up. We went home. And, of course, I had some waiting on me there. So stuff started back up for another four months after that. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff I'm going to skip over because it's not relevant. It's just like war stories. But uh, so about two weeks prior to when I got sober, I got sober October 18th of 2020 or October 17th of 2020. Uh, I was allowed to see my son again. And he hadn't seen me since before the wreck. And like before the wreck, you know, I'm I'm six five, two hundred and eighty five pounds. 
Like I'm in good shape, you know, like right now I look like I did prior to, to all that stuff. And I, at that time I was 230 pounds. So I was 55 pounds lighter, uh, just scars all over my body. I had contracted MRSA. I'd had a flutter from, from meth where my heartbeat was over 250 beats a minute. They had to fix that. I had got to the point where with that MRSA, it got septic, like it made it to my heart. Like, you know, it was another whole stay in the hospital. I almost died again. And, uh, so I looked bad, like really bad. You had an eye patch on, face was all droopy. <laughs> so my son comes up at the park and he's like, I guess he had heard, you know, his mom talking about it, but he goes, Dad, did you almost die? So I said, Yes, son, I almost died. And he said, uh, He said, Dad, if, if you die, I don't want to bury you outside of my window. So you always be there. And, uh, I don't know what it was about that moment, you know, but I, I realized that in his mind that I would have been more present as a father in the ground outside of his bedroom window than I had been walking on top of it. And, uh, you know, like I said, there was never one circumstance that was like, okay, that's it. Like, not homeless, not arrested, not the wreck, not him being born, like no one event has ever made me say that's enough I'm done but when he said that like I felt the pain of everything that that living in active addiction had, had brought on me and I was as spiritually broken as I had ever been so like when I tell you what rock bottom was for me it wasn't anything it was it was the fact that I was out there digging my own grave and I couldn't fucking die and uh I was at that place where you know, they talk about this in the program, that, that jumping off point where you can't imagine a life with or without drugs and alcohol. And what that meant for me is like, I, I didn't know, I'd lost the ability to give and to receive love. Like my love that I gave always had strings attached to it. And I hated myself, so I didn't think I was even lovable. So I, I didn't have the ability to do either. And that point where I, I just felt so fucking alone on this, on this planet and... I didn't want to live another day the way I was living. So a week after that, went to the airport and buddy of mine dropped me off. I missed my plane three times because I was so fucked up. But uh, buddy took me to the airport, dropped me off. I took my last shot of methamphetamine in the airport bathroom, got on the airplane, went to California. This place called Howard Lodge. I got to give them a shout out. They, uh, they saved my life, man. Like they, they saved my life. Like I got, I got a full, like just pushed right in to the 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. The guy that owns the place, Chet Howard, that's my sponsor. He won't mind me saying his name on here. He's a douchebag. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's my, yeah, that's got to save my life. So, from California, uh, you know, I got a job in the lumber yard. I started doing steps, met a guy in North Dakota, came up here to get a job, and, you know, here I am. My God. I've never teared up from somebody's story, and that you did it. Uh, no, don't apologize. Don't. <laughs> I've cheered up over it a couple times myself. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't apologize, brother. Um, fuck, I, I just remember, I remember that desperation of 
of of the whole situation, you know, with me is one of the things that still haunts me, you know, from my active addiction is my my daughter, uh, my biological daughter. Um, when I went to go drop her off at her mom's in Georgia, she said, "Dad, don't go." And I, I, that was the moment that I realized, like, I, I never wanted to be my dad when I was a kid. You know, even growing up, I didn't want to be my dad um, because he was, you know, he was the best raising me. And, and him and I have a much better relationship now. But I remember looking at my dad and saying, Dad, don't go. And, and he said, well, I got to go. Yeah. And when my kid said, Dad, don't go, I, I looked at her and I said, I, I got to go. Right. And I went home, looked at myself in the mirror, and the scariest shit was looking up and seeing your dad staring back at you. Right. Yeah. And, and you know when when you you know when you're talking about being present as a father, man, like there are so many times I ran a, ran away from my kid uh, because I didn't feel like I was worthy enough. You know, I didn't yeah. feel like I was worthy enough for love. I wasn't able to give that love because I didn't love my fucking self at all. I hated who I was. I hated everybody around me, but I hated myself more. Um. And. and I can relate to a lot of your story, a lot of it, man. And, and, and oh, man, I'm speechless, dude. You've you've had a hell of a life. Yeah, yeah. I hope it gets. You know, it's just it's completely different today, man. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I don't get to see my son like I want to because he's still in North Carolina. But you know, I talk to him a couple times a week. You know, I'm paying child support, which you know, it's just a typical responsibility of an adult but it's a big deal for somebody like me yeah uh you know like me i talk to my mom a couple times a week and this is a woman that went about a year and a half two years without speaking to me and it you know and it wouldn't you know i always talk about this to to people you know they they come into meetings sometimes or or even on tiktok and you know it's, it's the negative parts like life is so hard you know, active addiction, da da da. And the the point I make is like, if you think it's hard to be an addict, why don't you try loving one? Because you know, it, it's it's waiting up, not knowing every time the phone rings if it's going to be that call, or you know, having to mourn for your your child when they're still alive, or your husband, or your wife, or your your parent, and you know you don't know what, where they're at, what they're doing. And like, just to find out that they're in fucking jail brings you a sense of relief because yeah. at least, you know, they're somewhere where they're fed They're They got a roof over their head and they're safe. Yeah. You know, like it's definitely hard to be an addict, but to, to love one, man, I, you know, and I've been on both sides of this at this point, you know, like working with, with other people in active addiction is, is really opened my eyes to, Man, that's that that's had to be how my my mother felt, or you know, and that had to be how my relationship partner at that point in time felt. And it's uh, you know, it it, it, may, it gives me a new appreciation for for the people that God has put in my life. You know, it gives me motivation every day when I wake up that I don't want to I don't want to make them suffer that anymore, and I don't want to suffer myself. So. You know, just try to find the best way to, to help somebody today. And, you know, that, that's what it's about for me. Yeah. I remember uh, at the beginning, uh, you were talking about uh, getting hooked instantly. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, uh, 
pills and 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 hard stuff were never my never my thing but uh it, it, but it was because i liked it too much you know like i i love yeah I've, I've done coke before and 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 i liked it too much and i was like if i and this was me and my 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 addicted mind you know uh justification i was like if i like it too much i'm not gonna do it but yet I got a captain, or I got I got a I got a fucking handle of captain in the fridge. I can drink that and I'll be all right. Right. You know what I mean? Like just the justification of I like it too much, but I've got another substance to substitute for it. Right. And yeah, and and you know, like like you and I, you and I talked about about this online or uh, offline. Uh, was was about the the concept of of California sober, and that's not sobriety. That's not recovery. Because all you're doing is substituting one one substance of choice for another one. Well, what I'll say about California sober, you know, it's it's a version of harm reduction, and I think the uh, it, it's basically self-imposed MAT uh, medical assistant treatment. I will say that if it is a progressive movement towards getting sober, that I can see it as being recovery. Yeah because you are progressing to that, but it's not sober. Like you can't like words mean things like sober means I'm not drinking alcohol. I'm not getting fucked up anything from the neck up. I'm not doing, it's not clean. It, it's, it, I, it can be a, a progressive form of recovery, but it's not sober. And yeah, you know, I think it's mislabeled in that way. Like, you know, but by saying California and saying sober with it, a lot of people are like, eh, fuck that shit. It's not, it's not sober. And then, you know, there's this whole argument going back for what well, keeps me alive. And, you know, and like, I don't care what people do, man. Like whatever they do to keep them alive, I'm, I support, but like, I, I do have an issue with language, like words mean things. And, you know, if you're going to say it's sober, then be sober. If you're going to say it's, you know, um, I'm using this as a stepping stone to get sober, then we can call it recovery. We can call yeah. it, you know, but, so you you mentioned uh, MAT medically assisted uh, treatment. I used to have a negative connotation when it came to that and a negative thought process. And that was because when I was in jail, I seen uh, people using Suboxone, but using Suboxone to get fucked up. Right. And you know uh, they would put it in their eyes. They'd mix it in water, put it in their eyes. They would you know whatever, and, but they would abuse it and, to the point where they're getting fucked up and. Like, so I had a real negative connotation, really negative thought process when it came to that. And even like Vivitrol and stuff like that, like getting out of jail, hearing about Vivitrol and stuff like that. Uh, but some of my closest friends, what really changed my mind, I don't know how you feel about it, but what really changed my mind was uh, I have a good buddy that lives in Tennessee uh, in Nashville, and he is a vet buddy of mine. I'm, I'm a vet, too. And, uh, he was one of my medics. And so I knew, I know his story and, uh, I, we've talked to a story. He's going to be a guest on my show here very soon. Um, but he, uh, he was like, yeah, man, I, I just got this prescription for Suboxone. And I was like, like I, the, the first introduction that I have with Suboxone after being out of jail. And he's like, yeah, man, I, I just got this prescription for Suboxone. I was like, fuck you mean you're taking Suboxone? And he's like, well, you know, it's helping me stay sober. And I was like, well, that's not so sobriety. That's not recovery. <laughs> and, right. uh, and I said that. And I was like, that's not sobriety. That's not recovery. He's like, am I doing meth? I was like, no. <laughs> He's like, am I, am I shooting heroin again? I said, no. 
he's like, have I been in jail for an extended period of time? I said, no. And he's like, okay, it's keeping me sober. And I was like, all right. So then I started doing research and, and stuff like that. And there's millions of people worldwide that are, that are using, you know, Suboxone, Vivitrol, uh, uh, methadone, and even medical marijuana to, to stay sober. And so I had to really take a, an ev evaluated step. And I know that was for me, that was one of, uh, one of the, um, prejudice that I had when I started getting into this was, was people that were, that were using MAT as, as a form of recovery. But then I had to, I had to stop and think about it. And it was like, it's not my recovery. Right. If, if it's keeping them sober and they're staying sober, then, Hey, you know, good on them. So what do you right. feel about that? Actually, uh, I was, I'm glad you asked that, man, because I, I actually put a lot of thought into to that specific thing last night, man. So, you know, Dr. Silkworth, the the people that kind of ushered in the 12-step deal, he says it's a disease of the mind, body, and spirit. <clears throat> so i'd be hard pressed to say that you know some people are more attacked on the spiritual level of this disease some people are more attached in in the mind part some people are more attached to the physical part i think those that are more attached in the physical part you know mat is probably a good a good method for them for me mine was spiritual like mine was spiritual i mean it, it, it affected the other things but like on a spiritual that's why you know when i said rock bottom was a spiritual brokenness for me that was the only thing that was enough to get me sober. So <clears throat> I remember going to the methadone clinic and trying that. And uh, all I did was fish for other people to get fucked up with. Like I would literally, I got a video making fun of this. Uh, like I do this character called a mad addict on, <laughs> on TikTok. But there's, there's a video where, you know, I'm in character and I go, it's just a random parking lot up here, but like, I would do this at the methadone clinic. I'd go and lay like little ticket bags out there, sit back and watch. And when somebody would pick it up and, and not throw it away and get in the car with it, I'm like, I got somebody to get fucked up with. I can sell to this person. It was not like methadone and, and suboxone didn't work for me because, you know, <laughs> somebody that works a 12 step program, when I get to step three and I'm saying, I'm going to turn my will and my life over to God as I understand him. Like if I got to show up at five o'clock in the morning at the clinic and turn my will and my life over to the doctor that's prescribing me or giving me suboxone or methadone, then I'm not relying on God. And it's, it's really for me because mine is a spiritual thing. And, you know, it's not so much the physical or the mental with me. When I rely on things other than God, then I'm already heading right back to the trap house. You know, and I, I mean, I think Matt works for the people that, that are more physically susceptible. I think, you know, there's, there's other options for those. I think AA also worked for those that are, you know, the mental part. I think all of us got the mental part, but you know, the, the differentiation comes with the spirit and the body. And, you know, I think that that's where the, the line is drawn. So like for me, <clears throat> I don't consider myself sober if I'm using any, any chemical, to rely on to get me through the circumstances of life. So like cigarettes, caffeine, you know, people make arguments about that energy drinks, whatever. And for me, it's like, I'm not relying on, like I hit my vape early. Like I'm not relying on this vape to get through this moment in life. 
if I put drugs or alcohol in my body, I'm relying on that shit to get through everything. Good times, bad times, medium times. Like if I feel bad, I want to feel good. If I feel good, I want to feel better. And, you know, for me, I've got to rely on, I've got to plug into the source that made me. So where I get my validation from, where I get, you know, my, my value and my self-worth from is my creator. And I can't rely on something else to give me that. Like even when life is bad and somebody makes me feel like I'm not worth it, like God made me and he made me worth it. So I've got to plug into that. That's got to be my source of, of everything to get through anything. Yeah, but that's absolutely. kind of how I feel about the whole thing, man. Like I don't, I don't knock people for doing, for doing that. I think <clears throat> I don't mean to like bulldoze this. I just you no, know, you're good, you're good. Feel, yeah, I've done a lot of thinking. I, I put a video out on Matt the other day, and uh, you know, it's kind of got blurred. Uh, you know, with the government getting involved in in the Matt and harm reduction, it's got blurred between harm reduction and drug promotion. So like. So San Francisco, Los Angeles, for example, uh, these two cities, you know, drug addiction and homelessness go hand in hand, right? So these two cities, uh, you know, the homeless rate, overdose rate, when they introduce like the needle exchange and, and, you know, drug exchange programs, the homeless rate, uh, the overdose rate in the homeless increased 70%. And then in 2020, when COVID hit, San Francisco would take the homeless population, they put them up in hotels that the city paid for, and they would deliver drugs and alcohol to their hotel rooms for free. And in 2020, the homeless death rate doubled because of that. It wasn't COVID. I mean, 1% of people that got COVID died, and that was the same percentage that went on in the homeless rate, but the rate of homeless death doubled under the guise of harm reduction. So, like, you really got to be careful about what, what's going on here. You know, maybe it's a form of population control. Maybe, you know, there's just a way to eradicate the homeless. I'm not real sure, but I do know that addiction and homeless go, homelessness goes hand in hand so much that, you know, if we, if we find a way that can, that can uh, curb addiction and get people sober and clean, then, you know, the homeless, uh, the homeless rate will definitely drop off there you absolutely. know absolutely so you touched a little bit about uh about what led you into recovery but what does your recovery program look like now what's keeping you sober i do a lot of things to, to stay sober man i sponsor people i go to meetings on zoom i go to meetings in person uh you know like i said it's mind body and spirit so like you know I go to the gym uh exercise uh, do things mentally, like as far as like, you know, reading. Uh, yeah, well, I watch, uh, I listen to talk radio that's informative. Just try to learn, try to expand, like, you know, activation upstairs. And then, you know, I pray. Uh, I pray a lot. Okay. I'm real careful about when I say amen because I like to keep an open dialogue with God throughout the course of the day, you know, and I, I talk to him, you know. Uh, I do service work, like even not not in recovery. Like you know, somebody calls and and asks me to help do do something. I always get you know, I always get asked to help people move. <laughs> but normally, normally when people call me and ask me for help, you know, I'm willing to do it. I don't expect things in return from it. 
you know, and like doing these things. So there, there's like such a correlation in addiction and, and trauma. And uh, there's a doctor, uh, Gabor Mate. I don't know if you've heard of him, but if you haven't, look him up. But he, he talks a lot about the trauma response uh, from, you know, these traumatic events to addiction. And uh, what he says is, you know, trauma doesn't have to be sexual assault or, or abuse. It can be something as small. Like an example he gives is like a kid comes in, he wants a cookie before dinner. His mom says, no, you can't have the cookie before dinner. Kid starts crying. His mom says, good little boys don't cry. And what the little boy hears is crying little boys aren't loved. So in his mind, he's like, I can't, I can't show my emotion. I can't show my feelings. And this is something that, that life beats out a lot of us, especially men, is that we can't be vulnerable. We can't show exactly how we feel in the moment. And that that is that is shame being attached to your spirit. So God made me to be a certain way, right? Like when, when I was born, I was exactly the way God intended over the course of time. I was taught by, by the world that I can't cry, that I can't ask for help, that, you know, I, I can't be a feeling emotional human being. So when those moments would come up, I'd have shame in who I was. That's trauma. And, you know, that's why prison doesn't work for us because, you know, when they lock up an addict in prison, the shame builds. Now he gets out of prison, he can't get a job. The shame builds. What's he going to do? He's going to go right back to the needle. And, you know, that that's the shit that takes me out of shame. Like, I've got to do something with pain. I've got to give my pain a purpose. I've got to be able to use it to help somebody else. So then it can't be a weapon for them to hurt me. And, you know, that that's the way my program works today. So I, I try to be as transparent be as open and be as willing to help people as possible. And, you know, if there's something that I've been through, I don't hold it back. You know, like in a one-on-one setting, if I'm talking to somebody and they're going through some shit I've been through before, they're going to get every bit of it. And this is how I got through it. But uh, that keeps me sober today. You are a fucking amazing human being. You know that. Well, I appreciate it, man. Uh, just trying to be the guy God made me to be, you know? <laughs> yeah. Be the best human being that you can be every day. And you, you're an amazing human being, dude. You've been through hell. You put your life through hell and, and you're, you've come out the other end a little bit scathed, but you know, better for it. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that I don't struggle, you know, like, I, do. I, yeah, I suffer today just like I did back then. It's just, you know, today I don't, I don't act on impulse. I don't, I, I try not to make decisions based on emotion. Uh, you know, I go to God, I pause and I pray about it. And, uh, you know, usually, usually when I feel like I'm getting reject, rejected, I'm normally getting redirected. You know, God will shut the door and open another one. I just got to quit beating down locked doors. Cause the thing is like when he pulled me out of addiction and I, Kick that door back in January 4th of 2020, the price tag went up. You know, pain is the price, better life. And like I had a lot of fucking pain to get back out of it. And, uh, you know, this time I don't want to go back through that closed door. Well, brother, you won't have to go through that closed door because you got a huge support system and I'm part of that. Yeah, I appreciate you, brother.
No problem. I appreciate you too. So, man, uh, if if anybody's going through this, any, any struggle, you know, with addiction, mental health disorders, what have you, uh, what what advice would you give them or suggestion would you give them uh, to help them out? Uh, mental health, addiction. I mean, they're hand in hand. I'd say ask for help and be willing to take it. It's like nobody can help you unless you're willing to be helped. And, uh, you know, when you get to the point and like, and, and that's the thing about this is you know, I heard a lady speak one night and she said, if I could snap my fingers and get you immediately right now to step one, I, I wouldn't do it. She said, cause I wouldn't want to rob you of the journey that it takes for you to get there yourself. So like, you know, and that's the thing is like, people talk about the rock bottom part. Like I've heard, yeah, I met a guy that said his rock bottom was when he crashed his yacht into the dock pier. And I'm sitting, he called a senator friend who got him, got him involved in treatment and got him sober. And I'm like, man, why couldn't that be my rock bottom? I wish I could have crashed my yacht. <laughs> right. Yeah, I heard a woman say that her rock bottom was falling off a bar stool one night. And that was it. Like, you know, it, you hit rock bottom when you quit digging. So, like, when you get to the point where you're, you want to quit digging and you ask for help, just be willing to take it. You know, be open-minded, willing to have solutions. If if you're not open to, to God, like, you, know, you see it's working for somebody else, and maybe just be willing to get open to God. You know, may, maybe, you know, if that doesn't work for you, then you may be mad. Maybe some of those other things will work for you. But when you go into something, make sure you're ready. Like, you know, it's... I can't do it for my son. I can't do it for my mom. I can't do it for anybody else because if I do it for somebody else, you know, what if they don't want to be in my life? What if they die? Like, what if, what do I do then? Like, I've got to do this because it's what I'm supposed to do. You know, and, uh, all I can say, man, is, you know, help H E L P his ever loving presence. When you ask for help, that's what I'm asking for. Man, you hit on two good things that I really want to hit on real quick. Uh, first is, uh, is you know, you got to be willing to accept that help. It's, you know, it takes it takes a big, it takes a lot to to ask for help, especially men because we're so used to to say fucking we got it, we can do it on our own. But when you start asking for that help, you have to be willing to accept that help. And I've I, so many times I've, I've asked for help, but never was willing to accept the help that was given to me. So I, I couldn't make any progress. Right. And then the second thing that you mentioned is doing it for yourself, you know, getting sober for yourself, dude. I, I, every single time that I I've had stints of sobriety a year here, two years there, uh, I always put my recovery or I wouldn't even call it recovery because it wasn't recovery. I always put my sobriety on somebody else. So when that person left, I had nobody to live for. I had no reason to stay sober. Right. So, so I, I relapsed every time and, 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 you know, this time, you know, and everybody had a problem with it. Everybody around me with the exception of the people that understood had a problem with me saying that, uh, that I had to get sober for myself. Right. So, um, when I, when my in-laws came to me and they're like, well, you're, um, you're not sober for your family. And I was like, well, they come next. But for me, primarily it's for me. 
I said, because if something happens and my, and, and my wife leaves, the kids, you know, leave, uh, God, God forbid any of that or anything worse happens. Uh, I have myself to live with. Right. And I have to, I have to look at myself in the mirror. And if I put my sobriety or my recovery on them, when they leave, I don't have anything to be sober for at all. Right. And so that, that, that is huge in recovery is, is doing it for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's there was a guy I was in treatment with one time, and he'd always say that uh, dying ain't no good way of living. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's an old North Carolina country boy sayings, man. And like, I, I attach on to him, but yeah, it's like you know, and it says in the big book that reliance on on humans will fail utterly, like utterly, and you know, that that's the whole thing is like, I want to be a human someone can rely on. So I can't be a human that relies on human. Yeah. Like, you know, they talk about higher powers and the doorknob, but, you know, man created the doorknob. Like, I'm I'm more powerful than a doorknob. Like, and the thing about doorknobs is they turn on you sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so, that, that's good. So, you know, I, it's, a, it's all about, man, like God put me here for a purpose. And my son ain't my son. Like, he's Jacob. Like I'm Joe. I was Joe before I was Jacob's dad. And like, I was just a, a gateway that God used to get my son to this earth. Like I don't own him. So I can't lose him. If he leaves, then, you know, if he, you know, if God calls him home, God forbid that. But, you know, if he calls him home, you know, I've got to be grateful for the time I had with him and still conduct myself in a manner that will make him proud. You know, and, and that's what this thing's about is like, you know, it's about a legacy. You know, I've never seen a hearse with a trailer hitch attached to it. Like, I can't take none of the, the stuff with me. And what matters is what I leave behind. So the only things in this world that I own, like I don't own the clothes on my back, this chain. I don't own the car. I don't own the house. Like anything that a man can take away from me is not mine. The things that I own are my peace of mind. You know, the, the love that I give, the, uh, you know, my faith, like these, these are the things that I truly own. And the only way I can keep them is by giving them to somebody else. And it's, it's like crazy how that works out, man. It's like the more I do in this world for the good, the, the less shame I have attached to me and who I am. And like, I'm, I'm more able to look at myself in the mirror and, and be okay with who Joey is. And not so worried about all the bullshit that's going on around me. So my sponsor used to always tell me, you know, drop a hula hoop over my head. And everything on the inside of that hula hoop's my business. And everything on the outside of it is not. So yeah, I try to I try to apply that as, as much as I can. I mean, it's it's, it's difficult some days because I still have that control issue where, you know, if these people would just act the way I wanted them to act, then my life would be better. But, you know, it, it's, yeah. it works out real well for me. Right. Right. Yeah. I just, I had a group last night. We were talking about uh, things you can't, can and can't control. And the common uh, idea is that there's not a lot you can control except for what is in your body. And uh, so, yeah, but Joe, where can we find you, man? For anybody uh, looking you out, looking for you, man, not looking for you in that kind of way. But. <laughs> well, I'm a, uh... On TikTok, my name is Recover underscore Life with a Y. So it's R E 
C-O-V-E-R underscore L-Y-F-E. Life is live your freedom every day. So, you know, that's that's my TikTok handle. Uh, Joe Stan on Facebook. Uh, Joe Stan 44 on Instagram. Uh, you can get up with me in, in all those ways. Like I typically will give my phone number out on, on TikTok for people in recovery community. Uh, you know, so sometimes, I mean, there's, there's some people that I just feel like are creepers. <laughs> but, yeah. But right. For the most part, you know, if, if you come at me in a, in a way that's like, okay, like, you know, I'm in recovery, like I'm, I'm trying to get sober, what, whatever, you know, I typically will do, do whatever I can to, to, you know, be in touch with you. But yeah, that's where you can find me. Sweet. Joe, thank you for hanging out with me, man. And, and thank you for being a blessing in my recovery, man. Thank you for sharing your story. Oh, yes. I appreciate you having me on here, man. It probably helped me more than it helped you. So. <laughs> hey, that's why I have people on here. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's about you. Yes, sir. I appreciate it, man. All right, brother. Well, everyone, thank you for hanging out with us for this hour. And uh, and yeah, if you if you guys want to find Joe, you can find him at Recovery Life or Recovery underscore life on TikTok. He's a super awesome guy. It's Recovery Without recover Life. Recover Life. life. Yeah, Recovery Life. life. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. recover life. My my bad. Oh, you super fu super funny guy. You know, uh mountain of a man. I I'm short. You know, uh I'm I'm five five. And when I see any of his posts, I'm like, God, he's a massive man. <laughs> so <laughs> but uh th yeah, thank you for being here, Joe. Thank you everybody for watching, and uh we'll talk to you guys later. Much love. Appreciate it.